This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thanks so much for joining me today. Happy New Year. I guess I'm still saying that. Today on the show, my guest is Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Dr. Marielle is an Afro-Dominican Columbia University-trained psychologist, intergenerational trauma expert, and the author of the book, Break the Cycle, a book that focuses on healing wounds of intergenerational trauma. She utilizes her training in holistic care to integrate holistic practices like sound bath meditation and breath work into therapy, which has been helped to deepen trauma healing for her clients. She's provided healing workshops to Fortune 100 companies, including Google, Twitter, Capital One, and lectures within the psychology department of Columbia University. All right, we get into a lot in this episode. How do we identify intergenerational trauma? What it means to be a cycle breaker? And we talk about our nervous systems and how that's all intertwined. Anxiety, walking through that with our children reparenting ourselves. We talk about so much in this episode and it got a little deep for me there towards the end. You'll see. I am so grateful for the conversation, for the peace, for the energy that Dr. Marielle brought to the conversation. She has this calming energy like anything I have ever experienced and you will see that in this conversation. Friends, if you do enjoy this podcast or you think there's someone in your life that might benefit for it, from it, if you could share it with them, that would be huge. I just, I think that there's a great message in here. And if we could share that with as many people as possible, it would be a beautiful thing. This episode of the podcast is supported by Cozy Earth. Wow. The most comfortable bedding, bath towels, apparel, Cozy wear, cozy, that's the best word, right? Cozy earth. Um, I am loving, loving, loving their sheets. I have the bamboo sheet set. I also have the most comfortable bedtime tee I've ever worn. Like I am obsessed with it. And they are offering you all a 35% discount. Just go to cozyearth.com. Use the code Lindsay35, that's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, 35, that'll save you 35%. CozyEarth.com, Lindsay35. Go be comfortable. (laughs) Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. All right, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Marielle Bouquet on the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Marielle. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. It's such a pleasure to be in connection with you and to have this conversation. Are you the most Zen person I've ever talked to? <laughs> I I will gladly take that title. Or the uh, I'm not Zen always, but I do work really hard to be as balanced as I can be. <laughs> okay. And I asked that you all before we hit record and I asked her what she had any questions. She just asked me how I was. (laughs) And I was like, when was the last time someone just said, how are you in that like very genuine way? I mean, you meant it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I want you to be well. And especially, you know, if we 
are going to be in conversation about stuff that, you know, sometimes can tug at our hearts. It's uh, for me, like our collective humanity matters. And so, you know, when we can hold each other in compassion, I think that it makes for better connections. And we, I think we, we all benefit from it. So I, I always want whoever is connected to me to feel at their best when they're in touch with me. And so that was my hope also for you to be well. You know, I listen, I've listened to you on several podcasts and listened to your podcast and I got that vibe from you, but there is something even more, I don't know if intense is the right word, but just more connected as soon as I saw your face in front of me that I felt. I mean, I really felt that. I wonder where that comes from. Hmm. Well, you know, I, I do feel like um, a lot of the circumstances that I've been through personally, but also as a clinician, like all the stories that I've had the honor to, to hear and um, the vulnerabilities that have been shared with me, I think definitely breeds a sensitivity to just how tender we can be as humans. And so my desire has always been to show up in the best way possible so that we people can feel their safest around me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it really comes from that deep desire, you know, just, just really understanding, wow, we can be so incredibly tender and just present completely differently. We could, so many of us are high functioning, but have so much uh, underneath that's happening. So how can I be just the best human I can be so that people can feel like, okay, this is a gentle place where I can mm-hmm. land. And you said you work really hard at that, that Zen that yeah. we talked about. How do you do that? How do you work hard at that? Well, you know, I've actually cultivated a lifestyle of just being a very holistically oriented person. So it's not just my practice that has a holistic element to it. Like I also wake up every day now, and this has been, you know, I've I've definitely had to work on this because the world is very tempting. Um, Mm. So it's very tempting to jump into autopilot and to actually like feed the frenzy. Mm. But I, you know, I wake up to a gratitude list, like in a mental list. I'm not very good about writing things down. I don't think my brain functions very well with that, but it definitely does function well with just like waking up and seeing what's around me and being grateful for that. And the gratitude comes from little things. Like I I don't really kind of like focus on big ginormous things, even though there are ginormous things happening in my life that I'm very grateful to say uh, are part of, you know, my journey. But like Warmth in my home is one thing that I am grateful for every single day. I can't imagine what a person living in the cold, unsheltered, might feel like. I've never had that experience, but I have had clients who have had that experience. And to to me, that is something that I, I need to be grateful for every single day. So I wake up with that gratitude list. I wake up with a mindful process around my coffee first before tea. And uh, I meditate, I listen to uh, sound baths as as I am like creating my morning. 
And that is all before I even get into my inbox. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot that happens in the process of my my morning that I've baked into my day that I savor really and 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 kind of like create a mindful practice around that I think has deeply, deeply uh, contributed to my ability to stay grounded. There is something so sacred about those like quiet morning hours. I hold my coffee time and my like quiet time. It's like the most important part of my day. And if I don't get it because a kid wakes up or something like that, I'm like totally thrown off, totally thrown off. Um, You mentioned sound baths. What is that? A sound bath is actually a Tibetan practice um, that that spans over thousands of years that uh, is a part of, it's a a Buddhist derivative, meaning like it comes from, you know, uh, that element of religion and spirituality, but it it has since taken a, a you know, a form that that is more like mind, body, spirit centered. And really what it is, is the utilization of crystal sound bowls and sometimes brass bowls to emit certain sound frequencies that can actually help to calm the mind and body. And it happens by way of not just the sounds themselves, which are known to really kind of get us into more trance and dreamlike states that can actually help us to uh, absorb more of a calm and, and, and relaxed mind state, but also because there's these micro vibrations that are emitted through the bowls themselves, especially when we actually sound the bowls in person, that can actually almost kind of like shake the body's hormones and and really kind of everything that's in the body shake it almost into balance at a very microscopic level so it has a very mind body um, capacity to create a relaxation response for us so it you know this is more of like the the newer science around it but you know for thousands of years we haven't had like scientific inquiry around you know sound medicine we've just known this works this helps and it is a part of what brings people into this meditative trance and this state in which they can actually really tune in and, and feel more grounded. Okay. It's an actual bowl. Mm-hmm. And you have it and you make the sounds in it yourself. Correct. It's a, it's a bowl. The ones that I use are made of crystal okay. quartz. And it has a mallet and the mallet you you bang upon the bowl or you um, you kind of caress the bowl with the mallet and it, it emits a sound that actually uh, creates different frequencies. Wow. So where would we, if we wanted to do it, where would we look to get one of these bowls and um, what did you call it? Um, the mallet. Yeah. The, the mallet, mallet yeah. usually comes with the bowl, but okay. um, you know, the there, there are a ton of vendors like on Etsy, but okay. there's also a lot of classes by practitioners that have actually, you know, been like generations of, um, uh, of pra- uh, in practice, right? Like they, it's part of their uh, culture and part of you know the the wisdom that's been handed down, and I think that it's been popularized enough, let's call it, that uh-huh. uh, 
that you can find a lot of sound bath meditation healers kind of across the nation and really across the world. Okay. Last sound bath question. I promise. I'm so intrigued by this. (laughs) How long do you do it for in the morning? Well, you know, I'm only uh, about 10 minutes into the practice itself. Although there have been moments where if there's an added tenderness that I feel, I probably would do more when the world is on fire, which is very often. Yes. I tend to gravitate towards these practices a little bit more. Okay. Um, we have to get into your backstory a little bit. There's so much to cover in this episode, but first we're both, I think, drinking tea. Are you still on your coffee? I actually am on um, chai tea with a little bit of milk just as an added oomph to my um to my morning because it's been a long morning so far. So after coffee, I had a little dose of uh, caffeine with the chai tea. <laughs> nice. I'm drinking this tea. It's mugwort. Have you heard of it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be helpful for anxiety, GI distress, all this. I went to this like fancy tea shop downtown and bought all this loose leaf tea. I'm oh. trying to, you know, explore the tea. Here's my little. <laughs> oh, I love this so much. Um. So. Before we get into your backstory, though, because I brought up the tea, can you tell us a little bit about your tea time? Yes. You know, um, tea time actually came out of this COVID-19 pandemic and my desire to really try and kind of almost kind of reach through the screen and, and help people to feel seen and heard through a time where tenderness was at an all time high. And I just invited people to tea with me and just started having tea and giving mental health tips in the process. But tea is actually what I call a generational gift in my family because my grandmother, my maternal grandmother used to use tea as a healing balm to like heal any of the ailments that her kids would would actually have. So she had all this wisdom that she carried with her and she would use local herbs and even herbs that were like literally around her home to actually help heal her kids. And And my mother passed on that wisdom onto me and, and I utilized that wisdom to now, you know, kind of create this experience of tea, tea time, and also just, you know, botanical wisdom, I guess. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, I've been trying to replace some of my coffee and alcohol with tea. And it's just like, um, it feels like ritualistic almost just like, it's like a, that's why I bought the loose leaf. Cause it makes it feel like more of a process. And I really yes. like that. Yes. It, I, I love the idea of mindful tea making and mindful tea drinking, which I also incorporate within my book. I actually have my grandmother's recipe um, in there for people to actually digest and and make within their homes. But, you know, part of that is, is to also invite people into this mindful process that can be done just within 10 minutes of your day. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, I, I really believe that lifestyle changes like that, like just almost kind of like slowing down a portion of your day to just integrate mindfulness within it can have such profound effects on our mental health. Mm, okay. Break the cycle. This book is Oprah's book club pick, by the way. Wow. <laughs> 
when we booked you for this interview, though, I'm not sure the book was out yet, and it definitely wasn't an Oprah's Book Club pick yet. So, so much has happened since we even scheduled this. So I first just want to say congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful that uh, Oprah's Book Club's folks have been uh, highlighting the book and uh, letting people know about it. It's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. So I'm just deeply grateful national bestseller as well, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Um, wait, first I have to ask, did you get to meet Oprah? No, no. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> the, well, you know, let's put it out into the universe. But yeah. um, I think it's just that uh, her folks just wanted to highlight the book as a book that, um, you know, has some nuggets of wisdom within it. So I think that that's what they did on their page, which is uh, – such an honor already. Um, I couldn't ask for more, but wow. you know, if, if they ever want to be in touch. <laughs> Don't you want to just sit at Oprah's table? Like I follow Oprah on Instagram and anytime she shows a video of like all these people gathering around her table, I'm like, I just want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be the dream for sure. <laughs> All right, everybody, listen up. If you want the best sleep of your life, this conversation, this episode, all these advertisers on this specific episode, this is going to be all about comfort here. <laughs> uh, Lagoon Sleep has the best pillows out there. They are so, so, so comfortable. Hypoallergenic, breathable, fully adjustable. You fill out a two-minute sleep quiz and you get paired with the pillow of your dreams. Pillow of your dreams? You'll dream on your pillow? so comfortable. I sleep better. I feel more situated with these pillows and you're going to want to check it out. So go to lagoonsleep.com slash Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, and take the two minute sleep quiz and then use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at checkout for 15% off your order. Go get some good sleep. All right, back to the show. Um, okay. So I think the best way to kind of get into your backstory might be to tell us where the book even came from. Yeah. You know, it, it actually came from me being in my own therapy room, actually while I was still in my doctoral training and feeling like a lot of the stories just felt um, like they carried a similar tone. They had these intergenerational ties and I just felt like there was a big elephant in the room that nobody was really calling out. Like we are dealing with intergenerational trauma mm. because this person that just went into battle in her last relationship had a mother that had a similar relational trajectory who had a grandmother who had a similar trajectory. And there are so many ways in which these three women's lives are intertwined and behaviorally, you know, um, very similar. And there were so many stories like that, like so, so many, they, different iterations, right? Different genders, different iterations, different experiences that people would have that would be, you know, some sort of category of trauma. But I just felt like I remember the feeling. It's so fascinating because uh, even as I, I wrote this into the book, but even as I wrote it into the book, I don't remember feeling the feeling that I'm feeling currently, which is like almost like, um, I don't know if you ever felt this immense pressure and tension mm. and you almost kind of like want to break out of it. 
And as a clinician, I'm like, how do I break out of this? Like, I feel so helpless as a clinician. Why do I feel helpless when I have such robust training? And why is it that I feel like I can't help this person? Well, because my training wasn't really incorporating this intergenerational analysis of, of why a person is coming in with this pain. And I felt like that, that kind of like barrier, that roadblock, um, that inability to really move forward when I didn't have the tools to really apply to the work because intergenerational trauma is not something that's taught to clinicians. None of us have mm. been... Not a single one of us, I can say, in 2024 have had some sort of um, robust training on trauma, period. Like, that's not a part of the curriculum of a lot of the associations and, and what they require of us. And the licensing boards and what they require of us, they don't incorporate trauma training. And then in addition to that, to not incorporate childhood trauma developmental trauma, intergenerational trauma, which is even more of a, uh, a common and also uh, integrated and, and, and layered experience that people come in with. So in my, my experience is not unique. I know a lot of clinicians that have been in this space where we feel like, well, what do I do here? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the, the motivation to really create Uh, some sort of a healing protocol for us all, for the individuals that wish to heal and perhaps don't have access to tools or therapy, the ones that are in therapy and feel like there's something more. And then for the clinicians and healers who are like, what do I do to help this person in a more robust way? I think that this Break the Cycle really gets at all of those, um, all of those goals. How do we know if we have intergenerational trauma in our lives, or does everybody have it to some extent? (laughs) What I'm realizing through now the conversations that I'm having more extensively is that I I haven't come across a single individual Mm. who doesn't have some sort of trauma in their family line and that that trauma has had some sort of an impact upon them. So I would say that it is incredibly common. And it is said that um, by the World Health Organization that an approximate 70% of people Mm. worldwide will experience a traumatic incident with about two-thirds of those experiencing at least three traumatic incidents in their lifetime. So it is a very – trauma and traumatic experiences are very prominent in our society. So I I think that it goes without saying that many, many of us will have something that we can – put in the trauma bucket and say, like, this was traumatic. I think that, you know, that holds, that helps us to understand at least, like, how prominent it can be. But for many of us, what it takes really is sometimes just looking at our family line and looking at our family from the perspective of, like, just having a trauma lens, just understanding what trauma responses are, and then starting to look at our family tree and, and just really kind of analyzing it and thinking, okay, this person was actually in a trauma response for a good portion of their lives. And we start really seeing the ways that trauma really flowed through our family tree. I want to bring up something that has been like <laughs> prominent in, in how my mom communicates to myself and my sisters and that like, I feel like there's always this like kind of comparison situation like 
Well, we don't have it that bad. Think about this person. And so at what point do we define something as trauma and how can we not belittle ours, but also not magnify it at the same time? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it, it is helpful um, for all of us to maybe come to common ground with the understanding that small, seemingly small experiences can have a really profound impact upon us. Mm. And especially if they happen in, in a way where they're chronic, um, someone can have financial difficulties for 10 years, let's say. Um, and that financial difficulty can have a really adverse impact upon their lives. And one may not categorize it as this ginormous thing that, you know, threatened your life. And, oh, my goodness, it wasn't like this major car accident that, mm. you know, uh, put you in physical therapy for five years and um, you almost didn't survive. But it was something that you experienced as adversity and m- made it so that you lived in a chronic state of survival. Mm. And so what, why I say that is because the appraisal, the self-appraisal that we have around experiences really matters when it comes to identifying something as traumatic. So something that can be seemingly small to someone can feel very traumatic versus something that, you know, someone can have a car accident that nearly threatened their lives and they had to go into physical therapy for years and they may not experience that as traumatic. So it really has a self-appraising like element to it. So I, I say that just like kind of like as a global disclaimer, but beyond that, I think it's really also important for us to take into consideration the fact that, you know, there have been a lot, there's a lot of talk about trauma lately and a lot of talk about intergenerational trauma. And then there's also the internet and all of that. I I categorize under the category of intergenerational privilege. We are so privileged to be able to have access to tools, information, um, the understanding that trauma can even be present in our lives and our families. All of that is not language that our parents had. Mm -mm. They never, and so when we approach them and we say, which I've done as well with my parents and say, hey, you know, I think something may have felt traumatic to for you in the past, it is going to take an added effort for them to actually come to terms with that and recognize it because it's language that we are accustomed to, but not language that they're used to. Mm. And in addition to that, there's a lot of additions here. <laughs> in addition to that, I think that there, there has been this collective coping mechanism that was present in previous generations that we also have to like really bring to light, right? Pushing things down and avoiding things is, has been very common for boomers Mm. and beyond. They had to do that to survive. And so when we're talking about 60, 70 years of a specific way of coping in order to get by life, we're talking about something that has helped them. Of course, we believe that other things can be more helpful And we understand for ourselves that we might need to 
actually uncover the layers and and actually work through the trauma in order to actually get to the other side and feel lighter. But for them, feeling lighter meant pushing it down. Yeah, that's so true. And when you say that, I think about all the things that my mom has always done to do that. She gets things done. She gets things done. She volunteers. She does all the things to help all the other people. And I don't know that that'll ever, that understanding will come to some of the people in these, this generation. We're, we're like in the middle generation, huh? Like, what is this going to be like for our kids' generation and like the, the people that are like 10, 15, 20 right now? I believe that what we decide to do right now, how we decide to break cycles now mm. offers, it, it offers kind of like this almost kind of like foundation for the next generation, hmm. how we decide to orient our children around their mental health, how we decide to validate their emotional experiences, how we decide to have conversations about their mental health rather than say, you're not depressed, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you're just, you're bored, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever kind of language we would, would have heard maybe in our generation, if we could break the cycle of that language and and utilize different language with our kids, it offers an opportunity for them to have a different kind of emotional foundation than maybe what we were offered. And, you know, also giving grace to previous generations because sometimes what we were offered was the best that they could do. And so all of that is to say, you know, I, I think that us, the millennials and Gen X have an incredible, incredible opportunity in front of us to create a better world for the next generation. And I believe that if if we can collectively decide we're going to break cycles in a very intentional, foundational, and sustainable way for the next generation because they deserve better, I think that there is something we can do that can be very monumental here. Hey friends, are you looking for a creative way to have so much fun? Do you live in Raleigh, North Carolina or near Raleigh? We have an amazing spin art studio here in Raleigh and it is the perfect place for an activity with your family, a date night. They have a spin art room and they have a splatter room. The splatter room is glow in the dark It's connected to a Bluetooth speaker, so you can play whatever fun music you want. There's a drum set in there. My kids had a blast. They've got balloons and so much fun, creative ways to get messy and creative and have fun. My kids did both the spin art and the splatter room, and they are still talking about it today. We have their paintings hung up by their beds. This was an experience they are still talking about, and we cannot wait to go back. So if you live around the Raleigh, North Carolina area, you can use a special discount code. Just go to spinartnation.com slash Raleigh. And when you check out, use the code Lindsay20. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-2-0. And that will get you 20% off the cost of SpinArt for you or the Splatter Room. It is such a fun experience. Your kids will never forget it. You won't forget it either. That's spinartnation.com slash Raleigh and use the code Lindsay20 for 20% off your order. Let me ask you, this is kind of a parenting specific question. 
if we have a child that is like dealing with some pretty intense anxiety and then they're making poor decisions in other parts of their lives, how do we like communicate to them like your anxiety can't be the reason that like the, oh, I did this because I'm anxious. Like how do we, or is that okay? Like what, how do we communicate that? I'm asking that because I had a friend who had a situation pop up and we were trying to decide like, how do you go about disciplining for this issue, knowing that you want to be really fragile with this anxiety, but not using language so that throughout the rest of their life, they might use that as a crutch. Like, oh, it's because I'm anxious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing about anxiety and an anxious process is that it almost kind of um, disrupts your ability to feel like you have choice. Mm. For example, um, you know, a person can feel... basically feel like they the choice that they have and the options that they have is to do whatever it is that they can to get rid of the anxiety. Sometimes that is, you know, self-sabotaging. Sometimes that is self-destructive behaviors. And all of that in the aim of trying to help bring down that anxious distress. Hmm. But when we can present a person with options, even a child with options, okay, You have the option to take deep breaths. You have the option to write down your thoughts. You have the option to talk to someone. You have the option to actually um, engage in um, progressive muscle relaxation to to help release some of the tension that's captured in your body. You have the option to talk to me and feel validated Mm. about your emotions. And we can just start presenting options. They see options. And so in part... It's going to be really critical for anyone that has an anxious teen or an anxious child to really start considering, okay, well, how can I present them with options so that they even grow up to be the adults that can almost kind of like by default think, okay, I have options A, B, and C, which one am I choosing? And they can like more frequently hopefully choose the option that can be more adaptive, but we have to present them with those options first. It's so hard to know, like, was this poor decision related to the anxiety or was it totally separate? How do we know? Well, you know, I think that that can be a very individualized uh, question that would require a bit more like inquiry with, with the person that is presenting with some of the anxiety, right? But I have seen often enough anxiety be a driving force behind a lot of decisions and behaviors. And in part, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to almost kind of reframe anxiety for a moment. Okay. I'd like to take us into the nervous system and, and really think about what is happening here. We're, we're talking about, when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about uh, a defaulting to the experience of fear. Anxiety means worry, right? Like over-worrying, generalized worry, fear being kind of like in in all areas of life because you've kind of applied fear, unconsciously you've applied fear, the emotion 
to everything, right? So you may have fear of social environments. You may have fear of like where your life is going. There's fear. What is fear? It's an emotion that is very deeply captured in the nervous system. And when we think about the nervous system, we have to think about how incredibly quick it is. Our nervous system, when Mm. it feels like there is like something that could be, you know, like cause some sort of harm to us, fear again, right? Oh my goodness, there's something in the environment that I am afraid of, fear. The nervous system says, I must do whatever it is that I can to protect myself. Mm. I must either fight with someone and there goes that relationship, right? I must flee and now I'm an absentee, right, in, in my life and I may have like stormed out of the meeting or I stormed out of my room if I'm a kid, right? You know, I, I like, I did the thing to avoid. We might freeze, we're dissociating, we're not present, loss of focus or fawn, complete emotional shutdown, not even like relatable at that point. And, and so like when all of that is happening underneath the surface, it looks like anxiety. Very often, a lot of what it is, is the nervous system feeling overactive, over-responsive to the potential of threat in our environment. And it makes it so that this person is just doing what they can to survive. So that is why, you know, oftentimes I try to orient both parents and children around the practices to help settle the nervous system. Because when we can settle the nervous system, we can kind of bring the person more out of that survival mode, which allows them to actually make decisions that can be in their favor. And we also have to think about what is happening when the nervous system is overactive. When our nervous systems are in that state of threat, our cortical brain, which are, you know, the prefrontal part of our brain that we typically utilize for, um, you know, inhibition, for example, is, is largely situated there, which is what helps us to not do something, you know, that, that could be rash or like without thinking first. Our capacity to, to really be solution focused is situated in, in that area of the brain. Our capacity to, be, to, to engage in complex thinking is also there. So if all of that is situated in the cortical brain and when our nervous system is in a state of threat, it partially kind of shuts down that part of our brain because it doesn't need that for survival. What it needs is other, other functions of the brain in order to survive. So we're not really using the parts of our brain that can make us, help us to make better decisions. Mm. And so like, you know, when, when we're talking about someone who's presenting as anxious, right? Let's say they're in a state of nervous system threat. And they're making poor decisions because the inhibition is compromised, because their capacity to be solution-oriented in a way that is adaptive is also compromised, then what, what it looks like is bad choices, bad behavior. But what it really is, is a person being in a state of survival and just doing what they can to survive. Wow. I can't, I don't want to cry. <laughs> mm. I can't even like explain how like deeply that just hit me mm. it's okay I didn't yeah that. no it's okay that's I understand and sometimes and um I just want to also check in with you I want to how are um, you how no are you I doing? just like I've had a lot of um 
I've dealt with a lot of fear and anxiety in my life. And like, Mm -hmm. as you were explaining that, I was like, wow, that is like exactly what was going on in my body. Uh And it is so hard to, um, explain that to someone else, you know? Um, I remember like I was last year, I was really going through it and I, um, I was walking to go get our car from this um, place that we were getting it fixed. And I thought, I'll just go for a walk to pick it up because it was close enough and I wanted to like get some fresh air. And I'm normally really on guard, like paying attention, like, you know, making sure don't have my music in or anything. If I'm like in a place where I like want to make sure I'm seen where everybody's around me. I just remember walking thinking like, I don't even care. <laughs> mm. Like if anything happens to me right now, cause I'm so numb and I'm, mm. I feel so like, and I, I guess that's that. Which one did you call that? The, the fawn? I, th- yeah, I think, it, I think that feels very like emotional shutdown for sure. Yeah. And like, you know, a, a state of just overwhelm, right? Like it just feels so overwhelming that you kind of just shrug your shoulders. Like, you know, I, I, it's just such, so much fight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when what, what tends to be missing in moments like that for many of us, for many, many of us, is the understanding that there are tools, there are ways that we can actually help ourselves out of that profound emotional distress that can, that can accumulate over the years to, to actually feel lighter. And I think mm-hmm. when we feel the heavy for so long, sometimes we're like, my goodness, like, what else do I have? I, like, there's, you know, sometimes like there's, there's nothing else to give. Like, I've just like tried everything. But many of us have not tried the things that can actually have not only immediate but profound lasting impact, which is going back into how we can settle our nervous system for the long term, right? Like how we can like really regenerate the ways in which our bodies are structured around fear. Mm. Gosh, that hit me hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Of course. Thank you for being willing to, <laughs> you know, just to... Um, Really, to integrate it into your understanding of yourself, I think that that's that's always my hope is that we can look at our lives a bit differently and say, wow, like there's something that this this is insight. I can use this to empower myself, to, to feel like I have something that I can lean on that can be helpful. And, and that's my, my aim, you know, with this work, that all of that can, can take place. So I appreciate you being willing to listen. What, why do we, like, run away from the healing, though? It's almost like, like, at that, when I was talking about last year, like, at that point, I was exhausted from that fight, 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 right? And that's why I was feeling those emotions of, like, I don't even care. But, like, why do we resist going to therapy? Why do we resist wanting – I guess we want don't want to do the work to get through it because it, it will feel hard? It's incredibly scary. Yeah. Healing is really scary. Like, it's – I think that's really understated. To, to say, hey, let's dig into the most vulnerable parts of you is something that mm. for a lot of people, they're like, I don't think I want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, think about what happened during the pandemic. Mm. So many people were like, 
oh my goodness, I've been on autopilot working day and night, having, you know, my role as a mother fill the voids of like empty space. And I've never really connected to the reality of the fact that I've been actually hurting. And so a lot of people were broken open during the pandemic because they were forced to be in the silence with themselves. They were forced to be um, in spaces that sometimes were triggering multi-generational homes that they could easily escape at 7 a.m. when they had to take their train or, you know, ride, you know, the kids to school and then from there go to work and work a good, you know, 12 hour shift and then come home, you know, do all the things that you have to do at home and then segue to sleep and not really have to think about what was underneath, which was a lot of pain. So when, when we were told, hey, uh, sit pretty in your house for a very long time, <laughs> a lot of people were like, oh, I didn't know that this pain was there. And I think that that's what really, in my opinion, I think that's a, a lot of what happened around this burgeoning global mental health crisis, mm-hmm. that a lot of people were then confronted with their shadows. And it became really scary because it, it is. It is if you don't have the tools. If you have the tools to actually help yourself or if you have someone by your side who's a clinician or a healer that can actually help you through the process, it is a tolerable process. And that's what I'm hoping the process of trauma healing can be for many of us, that it isn't something that we run away from because we're like, I can't do that. There's too much there. That instead, we can approach it and feel confident in the fact that we have the tools to get through it. Wow. What would you say could be like first steps for someone when they realize like there is this intergenerational trauma? It's, it's hard because like we talked about with our parents earlier, like a lot of times if we want to go there, they're not going to want to talk about it. So where do we start? Yeah. You know, it- Interestingly enough, sometimes we don't need the full account of their story in order to really know. Sometimes it, it, all it takes is looking at, let's say, for example, like, you know, you let's say you have a two-parent home and you saw that one parent was always coming to the emotional aid of the other parent. Mm-hmm. And you realize for yourself that whenever you're feeling exasperated, that you're kind of like almost magnetizing your partner your way and that they are acting as an emotional blanket for you. That's kind of like the general, more very general kind of like tenants around codependency. So we're already talking about two generations of codependent behaviors. And it is by way of your own observation. You didn't have to go to your mother and say, hey, were you codependent? And if so, like in which ways, right? You already have that observational data and you can already say, okay, you know what? There's a trauma response there and there's a trauma response that has been maintained within my generation. That's where I want to situate some of my healing efforts. And you can already start the process of engaging in the healing there. But even before we get into all of that data collection process, I always urge people to first find ways to almost kind of um, situate themselves in, I'll, I'll call it like ground themselves mm. 
And the reasons why it's important to first focus on how we can ground ourselves on a continuous basis well before we do the digging work is because if we start digging too early and without enough of the tools, we might go into that avoidance. We might start fleeing. We'll close the book. We won't do the work. It'll feel too intolerable, unbearable, and we will never touch the trauma. And a part of what tends to happen at that point in time is that we continue the process of being cycle keepers and we keep those cycles going and we risk, you know, kind of like just passing on that legacy to the next generation. Is it like a finite thing? Like, how do we know if we break the cycle, whatever the cycle is? For many of us, the cycles will be an ongoing journey, right? It will be like, and for many of us, there, there will be like tangible ways in which cycles will be broken. Like, for example, we may decide that the cycle of maybe physically punishing our children will end with us. And that's a very tangible, like, I know that I've broken the cycle because I have not hit my kid when, you know, they wanted a toy at the store. And for some of us, it will be more of a, an internal process. Like, I know that when I I'm feeling a bit tender, that I have the internal tools to help myself cope and soothe through that process, and I won't be magnetizing my partner into a codependent mm-hmm. process with me. And, and it will be an ongoing journey because we're talking about decades of being pre-programmed to be in a specific trauma response and, you know, just maybe a few months to years of, like, trying to undo that. But... What I, uh, in just like kind of nerding out with a little bit of behaviorism, yeah. what we know about, you know, what can actually sustain behavior is when we actually get positively reinforced, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like, you know, old school, like behaviorists used to use dogs, like in the, you know, studies and whatnot. Uh-huh. And they would help us understand that, you know, when you positively reinforce a behavior with a dog, like it is likely that the dog will do the thing over and over like with treats, you know, like yeah. <laughs> I'm a dog mom. So, you know, it makes oh, sense yeah. that I would bring dogs into this, but, um, the same goes for human behavior. When we feel the pride, that's positive reinforcement, pride as a reinforcement of, oh, I, I actually self-soothed today mm. and I didn't do that magnetizing that actually creates within us this desire, motivation to actually self-soothe tomorrow, self-soothe the next day, you know? And and so it creates a process, an internal process of like actually doing the thing that is more aligned with the goal of building a legacy that's different. How do we reward ourselves? Rewards can look like many things, but I love the reward of vocalizing, um, affirmations for ourselves. Like one thing that I do for myself is I say, I'm so proud of you, Marielle. Like you, you did that well. Mm -hmm. And I see you like, it's almost kind of like you're doing the thing, almost kind of reparenting. Mm -hmm. You're doing the thing that you're going to need in order to kind of create that internal dialogue for yourself that, that actually is affirming. So I am a strong believer in being able to affirm ourselves out loud. 
Reparenting. Whew, that's a whole nother conversation, huh? <laughs> it is. It is. But it is so incredibly critical. And, you know, it, I even place reparenting within my book, uh, and it's intergenerational reparenting, which is really critical in the generational healing process where, you know, we have to reparent ourselves while we parent our children. Mm. It is critical because it offers us an opportunity to not only fill the gaps of what has been missing uh, in, in our hearts that, and what we actually need in order to feel more settled, but it also offers us more opportunity to engage with children in a more child-centered way, meaning like mm. really taking into account their little lives and how we can be of best impact to them. Gosh, so good. All right. Thank you for all of this. I have a couple end of podcast questions, but this was honestly like deeper and bigger than I even imagined it would be. So thank you. Thank you for saying so. I, I'm so glad that it could be you know, something helpful and productive and uh, it could be a worthwhile conversation. I'm happy to hear that. Um, what's something professionally or personally that you haven't done that you'd like to do. These are just our fun end of the podcast wrap-ups to lighten up the mood a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. You know, I, I really want to be able to um, get into the process of being a contributor. Uh, and that means like writing articles, uh, contributing to the news and, you know, from a mental health perspective. So my hope is that maybe the universe will drive me in that direction in 2024. We'll see. What's the best, most recent book you've read? Ooh, love this. My goodness, I read so much. I got to really think about this one. Um, or if you have a couple. Thank you for that. <laughs> I love book recommendations. <laughs> yes. You know, I have two uh, memoirs that are incredible. They're intergenerational and they have this beautiful element of collective healing together with individual and family healing. One is called They Called Us Exceptional by Prachi Gupta. And the other one is called Nervous by Jen Soriano. And both have ways in which intergenerational healing has taken place in each of the author's lives. Wow. Nervous. Mm. Nervous, yeah. And she, you know, uh, Jen Soriano actually talks about her father being, I believe, a neurosurgeon and her actually having um, a condition that was situated in her nerves. And when she huh. dug deep enough, she realized that the condition was really tied to intergenerational trauma. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, what is your last message to leave with our audience today? Well, I think it's really, really important for us to understand that intergenerational trauma feels like a really big thing, feels heavy, big, deep, layered. But every single day presents us with an opportunity to break the cycle. We just have to take it. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Marielle Bouquet for coming on the show. I highly recommend you check out her book, Break the Cycle. She is doing some awesome work, and I am so grateful that she took the time to come on the podcast. 
you can follow her on social media. She is Dr. Marielle Bouquet. That's B-U-Q-U-E. You can find me. I am Lindsay Hine 626 on Instagram. You can learn more about this show and all the shows in our network at sandyboyproductions.com. You can find more on my website as well at lindsayhine.com. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?